Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you this morning. Um, and uh, we've got a power-packed passage of Scripture to look at this morning in Philippians chapter 3. You will need your Bibles open or your screens alive, please, with that passage so we can look at it together. I was given the title Pursuing Grace for this passage, but actually I've changed it to Pursuing Christ because what Paul is talking about in this passage is all about a person, not some sort of heavenly dispensation that we come across, but it's about a person, as you will see as we read through. So Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Well, this letter from Paul to the church in Philippi is not one of those highly doctrinal ones that takes hours to unravel. Um, but is about how we live as Christians, especially when we're under pressure. I remember watching a documentary a number of years ago on the television on the training of SAS troops, those crack troops that are sent into some of the most stressful and difficult situations in the world. And the presenter was interviewing a senior trainer of those troops. And this is the question he asked What is the one feature that you're really looking for for these troops? What's the one characteristic that they need to show? Almost without pausing for breath, this senior trainer said, oh, that's simple, he said, grace under pressure. I've remembered that phrase quite often as one of the things that probably we would all love to show more than anything else, grace under pressure. Here is the great apostle Paul, who is used to 
traveling abroad in all sorts of places in the conduct of his ministry and speaking out his faith wherever he is, now under house arrest, which is going to last for two years. We don't quite know uh, at exactly at what point in those two years he's writing this letter, but he's confined, he's under guard. How does he find grace under pressure? He's going to give us the answer in these verses. I remember a long time ago now, when I was a student at Theological College, that we were engaged in a preaching class. That's where you preach a sermon and 20 other people sort of criticize it straight afterwards in a class form. It's a radical way of learning for sure, but it's good for you. We were asked to prepare a sermon on Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. And that phrase is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Having prepared our talks, and I remember I found my preparation quite a challenge. The tutor's first question was, so, can I ask you honestly, how many of you would have chosen that text to preach from? And the truth is, there was not a hand shown in the class at all. None of us would have thought of preaching on that text. And one of the reasons for that was simple. None of us thought that in all honesty, we could say that Christ was everything to us and that nothing else mattered. Now, these verses in chapter three provide us with exactly the same challenge. So what does Paul say in these verses? Well, he starts off the chapter by saying, rejoice in the Lord. Actually, he tells the Philippians that in every chapter of this letter, perhaps most resoundingly in chapter four, verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. When you're in prison and feeling down, limited, restricted, not able to do what you want, not fulfilling your calling, what do you do? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. He's not just saying, be happy, think nice thoughts, look at the birds and the blue sky and think how lovely creation is. Uh, that's not what he's saying. Not even sort of be grateful for God's provision or every answer prayer. Even those things are not what he's saying. Uh, he's saying, look at what, or more importantly, who counts and see how blessed you are in Jesus. Look at the one who is risen from the dead, who prays for you as you walk through trouble, who is your shepherd in all things. And then he says, well, I, I may be repeating myself. And he mustn't, he doesn't mind doing that at all. Actually, it's funny how some of us are always looking for a novelty factor in church or in faith, aren't we? But what Paul says is sometimes we need the good old foundations being repeated to us. Because Paul says that's going to be a safeguard to you, It'll stop you going off track. It will stop you setting store by the wrong things or looking in the wrong direction for your satisfaction, pleasure or value. And then Paul says, watch out for anyone who would point you in the wrong direction. Now, in Paul's case, it was people from a Jewish background who thought themselves OK because of that background. 
Actually, verse two here is a big shock. He says, watch out for those dogs. We're supposed to be shocked. He calls these people who want to go back to Jewish values, nothing better than street dogs. By the way, not the nice, tame sort of dogs that we keep in our homes and pets and take lots of good care of and so on. The street dogs who, if you've traveled abroad, you will know, you've seen them, who snap at you as you go past and scavenge for scraps everywhere. He says, you value uh, circumcision as a sign of covenant, you Jews, but actually it's only mutilation. It doesn't count because this is what counts, he says in verse 3. It's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in what we can do by our own human effort. So Paul now leads, reads out, as it were, a list of all the things that could cause him to look in the wrong direction for his security. Well, he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what Jews uh, had to had to go through. He was Israeli by descent. He was from the very elite tribe of Benjamin. If you were from the tribe of Benjamin, you were special. He was a Hebrew-speaking Hebrew. He says that means that means not one of those Hebrews that grew up somewhere in the Greek-speaking world and have probably absorbed Greek culture and the Greek language and so on, but he's a true Hebrew-speaking Hebrew. He's a true Torah-believing Pharisee. He's a jot and tittle man, not a modernist Sadducee. Uh, he's zealous to the end, as his persecution of Christians shows. By the way, zeal is seen by the Jews and by the Old Testament as a good thing. It's always commended. Half-heartedness, apathy, circumspection, all that sort of thing does not count for a lot in the Old Testament. Zeal is seen as a good thing. Phineas was given a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for God, Numbers chapter 25 tells us. And for example, Psalm 69 is quoted of Jesus himself when he cleared out the temple. Zeal for your house consumes me. Paul says, I'm, I'm one of those zealous guys. And he says, I was as sinless as I could possibly be. But in verse 7, it tells us, but I now realized that these things don't count at all. Actually, they may be the best a, Jew, a good Jewish man can do, but compared with knowing Christ. They're all rubbish. He actually uses the language of accountants, talks about assets and liabilities. What used to be seen as assets, he now sees as liabilities. And the reason for this is simple in his mind. Christ is the only thing that counts or the only person that counts for me to live is Christ. Now, it may be worth our thinking about the things that are sometimes important to us. And perhaps this is a time when we are challenged to say what is really important? What are the things we miss? Uh, do they really matter as much as we think? Well, the things that are often important to us are maybe, especially in a context like Oxford, education, career, achievement. Maybe it's money, possessions, or what other people think 
being well thought of, being appreciated by others, having a good reputation, or maybe even some sort of good deeds, concern for social justice, family, uh, the importance of family or generosity. Paul basically says when you meet Christ, you understand that actually those things don't count. It's not like they prop you up and give you insecurity. Only Christ does. All the striving for worth, value, achievement, excellence, possessions is taken out of your life when you come to Christ and you enter, ah, listen carefully, you enter a whole new phase of value because you're loved by him. You enter a whole new phase of rest because you depend on Christ to do things for you. You enter a whole new phase of satisfaction because he lives life in you. And a whole new phase of wonder, because you've received a gift of love by which you are a child of God and a member of God's family forever. So what do we gain when we come to Christ? Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul says, we serve God by his spirit. When we come to Christ, we start a new life by God's spirit. This is a great day to think of this. This is a day when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost Sunday. But when we come to God, we start a new life by his spirit. Jesus said we're born again from above by the Holy Spirit. It's a new start, which God starts. It's not a start that we decide to do. God starts something new in us. Then he gives us the Holy Spirit as a gift to help us live this new life. We couldn't be Christians without the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Now we live by the Spirit and we walk by the Spirit and we listen to the Spirit and are encouraged by the Spirit through God's Word. And it's this Spirit that God wants to drench us in this Pentecost Sunday. Secondly, uh, Paul says, well, we serve God by his spirit, but we also boast in Christ Jesus. We recognize that our own accomplishments or striving don't get us anywhere. Actually, God has saved us by sending Christ to die for us. Then he rose again for us to live resurrection life. And he lives within us by the spirit to give us hope, encouragement, endurance, and the future. Jesus has done it all. So now, what matters to us? What do we value most? That's the question. And Paul says virtually the same thing, but in three different formats. I just want to show you these phrases as we go through. In verse 8, he says, the thing that matters now is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Actually, this title that he uses, Christ Jesus, my Lord, says it all. He is Christ, the anointed Messiah. The Messiah is the one who saves us. He's anointed to come and save us. He helps us with everything. He saves us in every situation. He provides for us regularly and answers every prayer. So he's Christ. And then he's Jesus the man who has lived our life and understands our weakness 
and is now willing to help us in all of our weakness. And he's my Lord. That means he wants to direct me personally in the life that I now live. Help me with the decisions that I make from day to day and to live day by day for his glory. He says the most important thing, surpassing worth, is to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in verses 8 to 9, he also says, actually, he says, I consider all the other stuff rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What Paul wants more than anything else is focused in a person. It's focused in Christ, and he wants him more and more day by day in his life. He wants to grasp him, to understand him, to live in him, to be clothed in his righteousness. He wants Christ to be the love of his life, or as Mike Bickle, a famous American prophet, used to say, to be our magnificent obsession. I love that phrase. We want Christ to be our magnificent obsession. And thirdly, he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Well, he says, and I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. You may think, well, knowing Christ, that sounds familiar. It's lots of things we know. No, no, this is, this is a very special phrase that the Apostle Paul uses, and we need to understand it. This knowing Christ is a word that signifies intimate relationship. It's not head knowledge or theory. The way the word knowledge is first used in the scripture is where it says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and Adam knew his wife Eve. Well, you know what that means. We're talking about an intimate relationship of love between two people or beings. Paul says, I want to know Christ like that. I want to have an intimate relationship with him. It's a relationship that I have. I want an intimate day-to-day relationship with Christ. I want to feel the power of his risen life in me, his surging hope, his confident heart, his life which has overcome sin and death and Satan once and for all, the life that I can now enjoy in him if he lives in me. He says, I want to know Christ that way. See, he's talking about a relationship with a person. There was an old, old song that we used to sing when I was a child, which went like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's basically what happens when you take a camera And it shows up sort of a scenario, but you focus down on one thing in the center of your picture. Everything else blurs as this one thing becomes so clearly defined. Now, what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Christians in Philippi, he's saying is, this is what I want to be the center of my focus, Christ himself, the person of Christ, the love of Christ, who Christ is in all his Uh, victory over sin and death and Satan in his resurrection life. That's what I want. The father in the faith to me was a man called Barney Coons. He was the founding father of 
our salt and light family. I was drawn to him first because I was seeking wisdom and direction as a young church leader, and I recognized that that was something he had. But as I got to know him more and more, I discovered this was only the tip of the iceberg of his life in God. Actually, more than anything else, he loved Jesus. He was grieved when leaders went astray because he didn't want anything to reflect badly on Jesus. He loved the church because he knew that Jesus loved the church and he loved Jesus. Uh, he loved worship, not because he loved the worship experience, but because he loved Jesus. Uh, once or twice we had direct conversations, he and I, in which I was either headstrong, stubborn or hard hearted. And once or twice he ended up in tears. He was grieved because he felt the Holy Spirit would be grieved by my attitude and he loved Jesus. I recognized in the end that I wanted to catch that from him far more than his wisdom or his principles of building, because there's a heart to catch here. If there's anything you can catch from this passage today, I trust it will be Paul's love for Jesus and his great desire to know Jesus. And that should be our sole desire, our magnificent obsession, the thing we focus on more than anything else. May we know Christ in this most intimate way possible. Now I just want to pray for you as we close. Father, thank you for this wonderful day today when we celebrate the coming of your Holy Spirit, which launched your church out to proclaim Jesus and to demonstrate Jesus' love all over the world. Lord, we recognize that we need that baptism of the Holy Spirit again to fill our heart and to fill our lives and to send us out to demonstrate the love of Christ wherever we are, but to live this life of love to Christ as well. So we pray you baptize us, trench us in this life of the Holy Spirit, fill us up, that we might be totally absorbed and centered on Jesus Christ, that we may know him, the power of his resurrection, in us, in the mighty name of Jesus. Mm. Amen.